Today's reading is from 1 John, um, verse 2, beginning at, sorry, chapter 2, beginning at verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he was righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brothers in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them, 
and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. This is the word of the Lord. They, they tell you that whenever you do any public speaking, not to start with an apology. And I'm not going to, but I am going to make a confession, or rather an admission. And it's, some, it's that sometimes I find John's theology difficult to follow, a bit like walking through treacle. I have to read passages several times to get the gist. And as a result, it's, I find it difficult to absorb. Of course, that I struggle somewhat is not John's problem, it's mine. And as it is with all scripture, the charge for us is to seek to understand it with the help of the Holy Spirit. I think part of the problem is the way my brain is wired. I love Paul's epistles. They are direct, straightforward, and systematic. They move from point to point and arrive at a conclusion, instruction on practical Christian living. In contrast, as commentators have pointed out, John's writing is more like a musical repertoire. He touches on a theme, leaves it to introduce other themes, and then returns repeatedly to the original theme. And his writing is intense. It jumps out of the page at you. He leaves you in no doubt where he stands. His statements are dogmatic, challenging, and leave no room for manoeuvre, as we will see. I think his theology derives from who he was, an immensely spiritual person. He was one of the apostles on which the church was built. He was the apostle Jesus loved, one of his inner circle of three. John saw Jesus in all his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and accompanied Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion. And John's close relationship with Jesus reflects his spirituality and in turn his writings. 1 John was likely written towards the end of his life shortly before he was given the vision of Revelation on the island of Patmos. But for now, he was still caring for the flock, warning his dear children about antichrists people who had denied that Jesus was the Christ, denying that he came in the flesh, that he was fully human and fully divine. Martin Luther said, I have never read books more simple yet sublime. And John Stott observed, John writes as a pastor to his people in a language every modern pastor will understand. So it seems I still have some way to go. A passage starts in chapter 2 verse 28 after John had concluded his warning about antichrists. 
And now, dear children, continue in him. Or as other versions better describe it, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. The instruction John gives is to live righteous lives for Jesus. So when we stand before him, before the judgment seat of Christ, we will not be ashamed of our works. I would stress that salvation is, in, is not in doubt here. But have we built on wood, hay, stubble, which will be burnt up? Or have we built on gold, precious stones and silver, works which will last for eternity? If we abide in Jesus, we can stand before him with confidence at his coming and not be ashamed. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, provide the motivation for righteous living. It is because of the love the Father has lavished on us, his children. Imagine your favourite dessert, okay? Mine's a banana longboat, and at a birthday meal, it just keeps on coming until I can eat no more. It's a poor example, I know, but it illustrates that God's love can't be contained or quantified. It overflows. And I think God's love is something which is often underplayed in our preaching here at St. James. And at Jesus' coming, we will become like him. Our mortal bodies will take on immortality. Verse 3 concludes, Everyone who has this hope purifies themselves, just as Jesus is pure. God's love is the motivation for abiding in Jesus, which in turn results in righteous living. In chapter 3, John expands his teaching on the benefits and challenges of abiding in Christ. He lays down three tests by which the flock can judge themselves. I'm sure he also has the antichrists in mind here who have failed these tests. But by putting these before his little children, he knows they will pass and be encouraged. And by default, they are also tests for us. The first test is found in chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. It is a moral test. Are we living righteous lives? A genuine belief in the love of God and the return of Christ will produce moral purity in our lives. Since Christ died to take away our sin, we should sin less than before salvation. Our lives should no longer be characterised or dominated by sin. While outwardly there may be no apparent change in our hearts, God has started a work of salvation. 
It's a work of sanctification. It's a change the world doesn't recognise, but God knows. And as we test ourselves, can we ask, is this process taking place in our hearts? Perhaps there are still areas we need to give over to God. However, John writing in verses 6 and 9 makes some extremely challenging statements. He seems to be demanding perfection. Verse 6 says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 9 says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Is this right? Surely we all sin. In fact, John himself taught us much in chapter 1 when he said that if we sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All commentators recognise the strength of John's statements here and the impossible standard it imposes on us. A typical explanation is that believers' lives will be no longer characterised by habitual sin. Sin should have lost its grip on our lives and I think there is some merit in this. If the Holy Spirit is working in us, he will challenge us over our unconfessed sin. Yet despite this, many believers can be dominated by sin. For example, drink or gambling addictions or marital affairs. So I think there is another explanation which seems right to me in the context of John's incredible spirituality and the challenge of the Antichrist. It's this. Sin can never come out of seeing and knowing God. While we abide in God, we will not sin. It's impossible. If we, as his children, inherit a new sinless nature, We are a new creation. As far as our experience of God is concerned, it will always be sinless. It can't be anything else. And so, John has perfection in mind here. However, as we know, sinless abiding is often the exception rather than the rule in our everyday experience. Whilst we have become a new creation, this side of eternity, we still have our old sin natures. For me, it's Paul who teaches us how to aim for the high standards John demands. In Ephesians 4, 22, Paul encourages us 
to put off our former way of life, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. We are to be made new in the attitude of our minds. The process of purity starts in our thoughts, which in turn dictates our attitude and desires. Thought life is vitally important. We need to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Living a righteous life forms the basis of the other two tests, which we will look at quickly. The second test in verses 11 to 18 is a social test. Do we love our brothers and sisters? Christians are to be characterised by loving one another. This is a sign of salvation. That's not to say we won't disagree or lose tempers with each other from time to time. We will. But this should not be the norm. We should always be humble enough to admit our failings and to ask forgiveness of each other when necessary. If Jesus proved his love for dying for us, then we should prove ours in good works for each other and also in sharing our material possessions. Good works do not lead to salvation, but they do provide evidence of salvation. And again, John makes some challenging statements. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer can have eternal life. The standard here is that of the Sermon on the Mount. God judges not just our actions, but our thoughts and desires. Sadly, Christians do hate each other, as seen, for example, in the religious divides between Protestants and Catholics over the generations. One of my commentaries takes the injunction to love literally, So if you don't love the brethren, you don't have the spirit of God within you. However, like the previous test, I think John has perfection in view. Murder is not from God, and anyone hating his brother is not abiding in God. A Christian who hates is living in the realm of the world and Satan and needs to repent. The third test found in verses 19 to 24 is a test of the heart and it follows on from the previous two tests. If we are abiding in Christ and our love is genuine, we have assurance that we belong to the truth. This assurance brings confidence before God and leads to answered prayer. However, should we think we had failed the tests 
and our hearts condemn us, we can come before God for forgiveness. As verse 20 says, God is greater than our hearts and knows everything. Our condemning hearts are silenced and made at peace by asking God forgiveness. John chapter 1 verse 9 has already laid down the practice for this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And finally, in verse 24, John introduces a further test, the witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Abiding in Christ and loving the brethren is enabled by the indwelling Spirit. But this is for next week's sermon so I won't elaborate. So where do we stand before God today? If we're not sure, let's think through the tests by which John challenged and encouraged his flock. Are we living righteous lives? Do we love our brothers and sisters in the church? And do we have assurance in our hearts? If not, let's seek God's forgiveness as he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen.